Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, this morning, we continue our sermon series that we've been in throughout this summer called More to the Story, Bible Stories You Thought You Knew. In this series, we're looking at some of the most incredible stories in the Bible, some of them probably very familiar to you, others a little less familiar. And our hope is that as we visit these stories, we're going to see things that maybe you didn't realize the first time. Or at least see how all of these stories aren't just great stories, they are, but aren't just great stories, they're stories that were pointing to Jesus and that are a relevant story that gives hope for our lives today. And so if you have missed some stories and want to get caught up, you can go to our YouTube channel, PCTRNJ, or our podcast as well. And as we move into today's story, I'm wondering, have you ever had someone who bailed out when things got hard? The summer after my freshman year of college, a friend of mine and I got a job with this company. It was really just doing odd jobs, janitorial things, small handiwork things. And at one point, the owner of the company asked my friend and I to come to his house to do some work. He wanted us to refinish his deck, and his deck was incredible because his house was incredible. This deck was, spanned the entire length of the back of the house. It was seriously 100 feet long, and it was sitting on the second floor of the home that sat at the edge of this valley, and on the other side were these mountains. I mean, it's just this gorgeous spot. And he wanted us to refinish this deck, sanding it down and restaining it. And, you know, the deck itself, no big deal. The railings, no big deal. But the spindles, man. One spindle every four inches for 100 feet, 300 spindles. Four sides, all wood, sanding, staining. We didn't have anything better to do. We're a couple of college guys. So, sure, we started working at the job. Not too long into the job, my friend had vacation scheduled with his family, and so he and his, va- his family went on vacation, and I just kept showing up, grinding away at this job day after day. Well, the problem is, he never came back. He went on vacation, but didn't come back to the job, <laughs> and he left me there working day after day after day until the job was done. Things got hard. And he bailed out. And that idea is at the heart of the story we're going to read today. When things get hard, is there going to be anyone there for us? Or are they going to bail out? You've actually already heard the first part of our story, but I just want to give you a little more background as we enter into it. The people of God, known as the Israelites had been unfaithful to God for years. They had been worshiping all sorts of other gods. They had been just kind of doing whatever they wanted, that they saw fit. And finally, God had had enough. And he uses the nation of Babylon to come and take them captive, take them back as exiles into Babylon. So now they had been removed from the promised land, their homeland. 
Well, while they're there, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has set up this huge statue, this golden image, and had made this decree that any time the music was played, the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, I don't know what a zither is, but it sounds really awesome. The zither, the lyre, the harp, the horns, whatever it is, any time the music is played, everyone who heard it was supposed to bow down and worship the image of gold that had been made. Well, this is kind of a problem. Not only were they supposed to bow down, if they didn't bow down, they were going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Well, the problem is for Rack, Shack, and Benny, as they're known by the VeggieTales, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, see, these three Israelites, they've been taken captive and they can't and they won't worship anything or anyone other than the one true God. And so they refuse to bow down. And some of the king's advisors start stirring up trouble. They tattletale and let the king know. And the king comes and finds them because he is furious. And he confronts them and says, hey, what is this I hear that every time the music is played, you refuse to bow down? Is that true? (laughs) Now, I want to pause because sometimes when we see stories like this in the Bible that involve these images and statues, and we just kind of, I think, can gloss over it because it's like, you know what? I don't really relate. I haven't bowed down to any statues lately. But if we gloss over it, we can miss some incredible points that are meant for us that are relevant today. Let me ask you this. Are there any images in our lives that we're being asked to bow down to and worship? Sure, maybe it's not a statue, but are there any things, any images in our lives that when the music plays, the expectation is that you will fall in line to? I actually don't think we have to look all that hard to see these things, to see these images in our culture. We've got the image of celebrity, and I'm not just talking about Hollywood and New York. The reality is Christian culture in America has an infatuation with celebrity as well. There's the image of power. Those who have it grabbing for more and those who have it demanding further allegiance from those who don't. The image of money and status The message constantly being put out there, buy this or you're going to be missing out on the fulfilling good life. Buy this. Oh, and good, lucky for you, it's on sale now, so buy now. Or should I say bow now? Maybe it's not the image of just the perfect life itself. So many people are feeling crushed and overwhelmed by this pursuit of the perfect life, of the perfect job, the perfect home, the perfect body, the perfect family, the perfect vacation, the perfect whatever it would be, and it's consuming and crushing us. Maybe it's the demand to affirm that all paths, all faiths, all lifestyles are equal and good as long as nobody's hurting anybody. Bow down. Don't make an exclusive claim of Jesus. But as I was thinking about this this week, the the thing that really stuck out to me was I found myself thinking about our political polarization that's really consuming our country right now. I mean, the headlines every day. And I remember how compelling it was the first time I heard the, pack, the, the term package ethics applied to our political reality. Are you familiar with that term? Package ethics is a term that essentially means that if you have a commitment to one cause that happens to be connected to one political party, then the assumption is that you also must be committed to all of the other causes that that party stands for. 
And so, for instance, if you happen to be for climate protection, then you must also be for easing immigration restrictions, sexual freedom, you must be pro-choice, gun for gun control, and all of these things have to go together even if there doesn't seem to be an apparent logical connection between them. And, and if you happen to be for small government and, and low taxation, then you also must be pro-life, pro-gun, sexually conservative, and anti-immigration. See, so much of our political life is wrapped up and governed by package ethics where you have to buy the whole deal, the whole cloth, the whole agenda of the party. And are there consequences if you don't bow? What are the consequences if you try to buck that trend? Maybe you've tried and in your own personal life, you may have heard, well, you're not a real Democrat. You're not a real Republican. And you may agree with a person on almost every issue, but you disagree on this one issue, and now you can no longer even have a conversation. You've been cut off. It's dividing families. It's dividing friendships. It's dividing churches. It's wreaking havoc because of the demand to bow and worship to the package ethics of our political world. And man, the... the, the pressure on the politicians that are living and trying to work, even the faithful ones trying to work within this system, is enormous. Afraid to step out of line because one misstep means you're not just the target of your opposition, you're the target of your own party. Canceled in a moment. See, the consequences of not bowing are severe. And, and the problem with this package ethics worship is that if you're a follower of Jesus, then our loyalty is to God and God alone. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would only bow their knee to the God of the universe, we too should only bow our knee, give our ultimate loyalty, and, and give the ultimate authority in our life to God alone. And if that is our loyalty, when we're, when we're sincere and we're digging in and we're thinking intently and we're looking at the scriptures, truly seeking the gospel implications of these issues, of the issues of climate and sexuality and taxation and guns and life and immigration and more, when we actually are digging in, we find God refuses to be put into any one package. He affirms parts of every package and rejects parts of every package. Because when we look at it, we find that God is pro-people, pro-life, pro-climate, pro-immigrant, pro-sexual design and purity, pro-individual responsibility, pro-loving our neighbor, pro-protecting the vulnerable. God refuses to be put into a conservative or a liberal package. And so we find ourselves perhaps in a space that's more like the space that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves in than we would have first thought if we just quickly glossed over the golden image. Because we have our golden images. And the pressure to worship and bow down is significant. But they refused, didn't they? They refused to bow down and the king is furious, just as all of those who are buying into the package ethics system are furious when you buck the trend. 
He's furious, but he's magnanimous. He's willing to give them a second chance to get it right, to get on the right side of things. And so he lets them know, we're going to play the music right now. And if you'll just bow your knee right now, we'll just forget all that stuff in the past. It'll be fine. We'll move on. And their response is so incredible. And we saw it in verse 17 earlier. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, here's the thing. We don't have to defend ourselves before you. (laughs) Because if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, right, the God we serve is able to save us from it. He'll rescue us from your hand, O king. I mean, what incredible faith and confidence right in the face of the king. See, they're grounded by knowing clearly who God is, how he has made them to live, and even the king's threats won't push them off of their core conviction. I mean, that's incredible faith. That's real faith, not just believing something in theory and saying, yes, I believe it, but literally putting their lives on the line to say, yes, I'm standing on this reality I mean, that's faith. But they go on to make this incredible follow-up statement. They say in eight, verse 18, but even if he does not, <laughs> even if God does not save us, even if he does not protect us from your hand, we just want you to know, King, we're not going to serve or worship your God or any other images. It's just not going to happen. See, Their faith and their confidence are not only there if things work out the way they want. Their faith is not sure and strong when the circumstances are all in order and good. No, their faith is rooted in the character of God, not in the circumstance they find themselves in. Because if our faith is in the circumstances, then it's going to rise and it's going to fall. It's going to come and it's going to go. We're going to have faith and then we're going to doubt and it's going to crush us. But if our faith is based on the character of God, then we won't have to ride the waves up and down with the circumstances. We can be steady because our God is steadfast. He is faithful. He never changes. He is good and he loves you. But that's the question, isn't it? Hanging over this entire story. When things get hard, will God bail out? Will he show up for us? Will he intervene? Will he rescue us? And so we're going to jump into the rest of that story as we seek to look for the answers to those questions and invite you to follow along on the screen if you'd like. But here as we jump back into Daniel chapter 3, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. 
So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So they defied the king. And his anger got hotter. And so did the furnace. Seven times hotter he has it heated. They're bound. They're tied by some of the strongest men in the Babylonian army. They're carried to the mouth of the furnace. And the furnace is so hot that before the soldiers can throw them into the fire, the flames consume the soldiers. And then it said, these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. I found myself wondering, was that necessary? I mean, we already know the end of the story. Right? They come out unscathed, not even smelling like fire or smoke. So why bother have them go into the fire in the first place? I mean, try to imagine what they must have been thinking, what they must have been feeling as they're being dropped, as their bodies are now falling into this raging hot furnace and they can feel the heat around them. Can you imagine? I, I mean, I tried, but I couldn't. The terror, the doubt, I want, probably second guessing, we've placed our faith in God. I can only imagine it was a total system overload and they must have been sure that they were going to die. But why would God allow them to even go into the fire in the first place? Why would he put them through that? I mean, he was clearly able to keep them from falling in, so why would he let them fall in? And I think the reality is this is a question that we carry with us in maybe different forms because you have found yourself, you may find yourself today in a fire. And you may have faith that God could do something about it. He could have helped you, allowed you to avoid this season, this particular trial or suffering or pain that you're walking through. You may have that confidence that God can save me, God can deliver me, God can heal me, God can rescue me from this fire. But here's the thing, God didn't rescue them from the fire. He delivered them through the fire. He didn't have them avoid the fire. He let them go right into it, even though he could have prevented it. So why would he do that? Why would he allow us to go into those places of trial, of fire, of darkness, and pain? I wonder what would happen if God saved us from every trial and fire that we face in our lives. What do you think would happen if you never went into a fire? I was first introduced through a YouTube video to the work of Greg Lukanoff, who's an attorney and an author and now an activist, and, and Jonathan Haidt, who's a social psychologist and a professor of, of, um, at NYU. And 
in 2015, they wrote an article for The Atlantic entitled, The Coddling of the American Mind. And they turned it into a book in 2018. And in this book, they're exploring a phenomenon that they were observing, particularly on college campuses. This phenomenon among young people where they started to to be very concerned that young people were becoming more fragile, more and more offended and hurt, more and more confronted and affronted by ideas and concepts that made them feel awkward or uncomfortable or offended. And as they dug into this more, they started observing a shift from helping young people become stronger intellectually and emotionally to protecting young people from trials and difficulty. And they conclude that part of this, part of the result of this shift, not the entire explanation, but part of it has resulted in this dramatic increase in anxiety among our young people, which is absolutely true that generation after generation after generation in America has become increasingly anxious. And they ask themselves, how did we get here? How did we get to this place where our young people are struggling so much? And one thing they point to is the emergence of what they called safetyism among parents since the 1980s. And they point to a decline in unsupervised free play since that period. And that unsupervised free play, like the time where kids would go out at dawn and would come back when the sun went down or when the streetlights came on. And in the course of that day, they undoubtedly hurt themselves in some way or got into fights with their friends and had to figure out how do we reconcile these differences. And they had difficulties that if they went home, there probably wouldn't have been that sympathetic a response. It would have been, yeah, get back outside go play. They had to figure out how to deal with the trials of everyday life. But in the 60s through the 90s, there was a very real surge in crime. And news started posting and milk cartons started showing all the pictures of the children who were being abducted. And of course, that brought this fear among parents and parents began to pull the reins in, working harder to keep their children safe. Emerged what have become known as the helicopter parents. But this effort to protect kids has had an unintended consequence that they've observed. That it's had this unintended consequence because what intended was intended to protect them so that they could become stronger has in fact made them weaker. That they haven't figured out how to deal with the difficulties and the trials that they face day in and day out because they've been protected from them. And so because they've been protected from them, they become weaker. And because they're weaker, they need to be protected more. And you can see how this could be a never-ending cycle generation after generation after generation. Instead, Lukanoff and, and Hate say this. They say, in life, we will face completely unexpected events. If we have limited or no prior exposure to unexpected events, we will likely find navigating them difficult. Systems that are anti-fragile, like our brains and its cognitive processes, need to encounter unexpected events so that they learn, adapt, and grow, making it more likely uncertainty is successfully navigated. A system that does not encounter unexpected events, on the other hand, can become rigid, weak, and inefficient because nothing challenges the system to respond vigorously. Thus, parents and teachers should help children learn and grow from facing risks and stressors, not limit their exposure to them. See, the fire 
The fire demanded a vigorous response, didn't it? I mean, talk about an unexpected event. I don't think they woke up that day saying, you know what, I think we're going to be thrown in a fire today. Right? It demanded that all of their faculties learn and grow and adapt. The fire is, in fact, where we become stronger, not where we become weaker. Part of what God is doing when he puts us, allows us to be in the fire, is building a resilience, a resilience within us because we know we've been through this, we can get through that. We've been through this fire, we can get through that storm. But it's not just a resilience in general and a resilience of ourselves. It's building the faculty that capacity for faith. It's the resilience of faith, the perseverance of faith, faith, the steadfastness of faith, a faith that is dependent with a healthy dependence on God that the God of the universe will in fact show up in the fire, just like he did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, there was a fourth man walking through the furnace with them. And many commentators see this as, as the son of God. The Son of God on earth showing up before he was born through Mary. And even Nebuchadnezzar concludes that the fourth, son, the fourth man looks like a son of the gods. Now, I hear people frequently say to themselves and to one another, God won't give me anything I can't handle. <laughs> and I know we say it as an encouragement. We say it to say, as hard as this is, you're going to get through it. But I make it a somewhat regular goal of mine to kind of break down what I think is, is weak and hurtful theology? Because here's the truth. God will absolutely give you more than you can handle. God will absolutely give you more than you can handle. Because did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have the ability to handle a blazing hot furnace? I mean, if the strongest soldiers in the Babylonian army were not able to stand up to the fires of the furnace, why do we think these three weak guys from Israel are somehow going to transcend this fire? No, see, God will put you in the trials, and he'll put you in the fires that are way bigger than you. And here's the crazy part. It's actually a gift. It's actually part of God's good plan and his good purpose. Because if they hadn't gone into the fire then they wouldn't have seen the Son of God on earth. They wouldn't have seen him face to face. If they hadn't gone into the fire, they wouldn't have the known the certainty of what they had believed, of what they had put their faith in. They were putting their faith in the character of God, that he is faithful, that he is steadfast, that he is true. But in the fire, they experienced the reality of his faithfulness, his steadfastness, his goodness. And man, this experience, I can only imagine solidified their faith for years and years to come. I can't really imagine that they were ever going to face another situation where they were wondering, is God going to bail out on me this time? No, this moment was their concrete evidence, their absolute gift that God is who he has said he is. And they could hold on to their faith in a way unlike any time before the fire because God was in the fire with them. And we get this story thousands of years later as this reminder to us that God will show up in our fire as well. And we may not have seen the face of the Son of God in the middle of the trial. We may not have seen with our eyes him show up physically. But there is another concrete reminder that we have instead because that same Son of God 
did come to earth again, did take human form in Jesus the Christ. And he faced the same temptation that we face every day, that temptation to bow our knee to the powers and principalities and authorities of this world. He was faced with the temptation to worship the devil in order to avoid the pain and the fire and the suffering of the cross. He was tempted to adopt the package ethics of the religious and political system of his day. He was pushed to bow down his knee to the throne of power. But he too said, no, I will worship the Lord my God alone and serve him only. Even if that means I have to give my life in obedience to the point of death on a cross, I will do that. And unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when Jesus entered into the fire, his life was not spared. The flames of hatred, of evil, and sin consumed him, and he died so that we don't have to. And so our concrete and tangible evidence of God's faithfulness, goodness, and steadfastness, the confidence that we can have that he will show up in our fire today is Jesus' own life, death, and resurrection because Jesus went into a fire that we can't even possibly fully understand. And he did it because he loves you that much. And so as we face the fires and trials in our lives, and we need to be strengthened and emboldened in our faith, my encouragement to you is to peer into the fire that Jesus walked through. Because just Nebuchadnezzar looked into the fire of the furnace, and he saw the Son of God, and it changed his life, changed his decree, changed his kingdom. And as you peer into the fire of the cross of what Jesus has done for you, it will change your life too. It will transform our lives. It will transform our faith. It will be the evidence, the concrete, tangible reminder that the God who would enter that fire on your behalf is going to absolutely be with you in the fire that you're living in today. And so contemplate it, meditate it, consider, peer into the fire of the cross to see that the God of the universe loves you and he is with you and he will meet you in the fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your, your word to us that is relevant for our lives today. And we don't want to pretend that being in the fire is easy, Lord. It is painful. It is hard. It's excruciating. The suffering is real. And yet, Lord, we also want to acknowledge that you are doing things in the fire, building a resilient faith showing up in powerful and profound ways, letting us know you more deeply. Lord God, continue to use the fire in our life to transform us. And Lord, as we peer into the fire of the cross, may we be enamored, may we be overcome, may we be encouraged by what Jesus has done for us. The fire of the cross as that incredible and powerful reminder that we will not be abandoned or forsaken. You will not bail out on us in the fire of today, of tomorrow, or of any point in our lives. Lord, build our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.